0: So I felt sort of bad about having a title of Isaac Finds a Bride because we do have an Isaac uh, who's a member here. But um, this is not about him. This is a different Isaac a long time ago. Um, So I have been um, preaching through um, stories from the patriarchs. And um, so we just happened to come to um, a part of Genesis where Abraham is going to help his son find a wife. Um, But maybe before we get into that, we're going to have a little children's class, so those of you who consider yourself to be of the age of children can come forward and maybe have a seat over on my right. So I have been thinking about extra things. So, um, So do you all like extra things? Yeah, Elise likes extra things. Yeah, it depends on what the extra thing is, right? I mean, sometimes if somebody says, I've got an extra job for you to do, what does that sound exciting? Yes. (laughs) Do the rest of you think an extra chore to do tomorrow would be an exciting thing? Grayson doesn't think so. The rest of you probably deal. Yeah, okay, well. We've got some helpers and then some not-so-helpers. not so not so, helpers. so in our story today, we find Rebecca doing something extra. So Rebecca came to the well, and what did she do? Yes, Grayson. She gave the man a drink. That's pretty hard, isn't it? Hmm? And she gave camels a drink too, so... So I have here a bag, and in my bag, you all probably can tell already, is a, what do you think is in my bag? Yes, Sophie, a cup. Well, you'll find out. So this is a cup, okay, and you all are going to imagine it's full of water, okay? So you see all the water pouring out? No. See, I, I I knew if I brought a cup up here with which was full of water, I would spill it, and then somebody would have to clean it up. It'd probably be me. So anyway, so I did not fill it up with water. Um, But you're going to imagine that there is water in this cup. And so if you go to a restaurant and you ask for a glass of water, um, what do you get? A glass of water. Do you think there's anything else in the water? No. Sometimes they put hard water in 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 the liquid water. Yes, Grayson. They put ice in it, that's right. And. Okay. You got soda pop. Well, see, I can't afford soda pop, so I just get water. Yes, Sophie. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they put little lemons or umbrellas in there. So sometimes, okay, so they don't do this at McDonald's. I found that out too. So sometimes the lady or man who's serving you will say, Would you like a lemon in it? Why do you think they do that? Because, it would be yummy. because it'd be yummy. Mm hmm. and see they would, they would take it out here and they would have a beautiful cup with a with a slice of lemon on the side. Okay. Wow. So, yes, Sophie. Cuz it's fancy. Um, yes, Grayson. Same. Okay. We're going to put this over here cuz I can't juggle but m- so many things at one time. So, They are just trying to make people happy. So what happens if if people are happy in a restaurant is they give a better tip. Does anybody know what a tip is? Yes, Grayson. Extra money. That's right. Sometimes people leave money on the table. I think there's like a Ramona story where she picked up the money off the table. I think think that happened. So anyway, so I was thinking about extra things. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 40 through 42, it says, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So he talks about something extra. What is the extra thing here? Grayson. Love, okay. But there's an extra mile. Have you ever heard of somebody going the extra mile? Yeah, what not you. Okay. Not in the Yoder household. Um so so what does it mean to go the extra mile? Yes, Elise. This is a this is a hard question. So what it meant was back in the back in the days that Jesus was preaching to the people, Roman soldiers could tell people, you have to carry my pack one mile. And at the end of one mile, you they couldn't make you carry it any farther. So that could be one mile completely out of your way. You didn't want to go that mile, and you certainly did not want to carry a Roman soldier's backpack. That doesn't sound like fun, does it? And Jesus said. I want you all, when you get done with that mile, to go with that Roman soldier and carry his pack one more mile. That's the extra mile. So this is like the extra lemon. Okay. So do you, do you all think that you're going to meet any Roman soldiers tomorrow that will make you carry a bag um, a mile? I'm, I'm doubting it, unless, unless school is different from usual. But there are times that your mom asks you to do something, And you could do just the very minimum. Or you could, mom didn't come this time. So, or you could try to do something extra. And so I want you all to think this coming week about ways in which you can do something extra for your mom or even your dad. Sometimes dads ask you to do things too, don't they? Okay, you all can go back to your parents. So this is a very odd message, and it is just a grab bag. So I don't even know what to to say, okay? So you all just have to hang on. And if if there's two things that you can carry away from the message, then that's good. Um, I don't know. You all want to keep looking at my sad lemon here. So we are going to be talking about... um, Genesis chapter 24. This is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, Um, and we have a story about what led up to a wedding. So in fiction, most of a book seems to be taken up with the process of getting two people together. So how many of you all have read the book Pride and Prejudice? There's a couple of people. Okay. Yeah, four or five even. So um, so Pride and Prejudice, um, I did not enjoy the book. I, I also read it. So, I'm, um, And it seemed to involve men walking into rooms and women sizing them up to see what kind of a catch they would be. And that was the whole book. And they would know exactly how much their estate was worth and how much they were getting in yearly income. And then... They would be like, well, you know, and they could rank them. So it's like, you know, there's uh, different people here. And, um, and so it, the book follows the second oldest girl, Elizabeth Bennett, on her journey, misunderstanding a man who falls in love with her. And eventually she gets to marry him by the end. So if you all haven't read the book, now you know what it's about. But some people enjoyed Jane Austen for, for the way she writes, I guess. So as we begin this story Isaac, of Isaac and Rebecca, we find Isaac somewhat lost. His mother's just died, and he is mourning her loss. And his dad, Abraham, sees that Isaac needs um, a woman in his life, and there just aren't any candidates around. All he can look out and see is... Uh, desert, and sheep, and camels, I guess, and Canaanite women. And he wasn't very happy with that. So marriage in Old Testament times, at least with wealthy fam- families, was about alliances and about continuing the family line. So we can see this even down into the 17th and 18th century- centuries. So uh, most of the royal families in Europe were related to each other at the start of World War I. So I looked this up because I wanted to know, inquiring minds, you know, and King George V of England, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, Germany were all first cousins. They had Queen Victoria as their grandmother. And unfortunately, this family relationship didn't stop World War I, did it? But the idea would have been back in the day that if they were related to each other, they would help each other out and they wouldn't go to war with each other. So this is maybe part of the reason why when we read the story of Solomon, we see that he married Pharaoh's daughter, and he hopes that that's going to keep Egypt from invading Canaan. Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 through 3 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess... And has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son nor take their daughter for your son. So the issue with the Canaanites was not ethnicity. So God is not a racist, and he was not a racist in the Old Testament, he's not a racist now. So God does not look at people with different color skin or uh, different nationalities and say, you are bad or you are good. But what he did was he looked at these people and he said, These people are practicing things that are despicable to me. And we think specifically of things like um, cultic prostitution, child sacrifice. These are things that God could not tolerate. And so when the people came into the land, there was only one way for, uh, for them to survive. And that was to join themselves to the people of Israel. So we see here the promise versus the practical. So God had made a promise to Abraham that his children would inherit the land where he was. But practically speaking, Abraham was over 100 years old, and he had no grandchildren. He had one son of promise, and he wasn't even married. And so this left something to be desired, so, probably the best thing that Abraham could have done from a worldly standpoint would be to go to one of the the local leaders. He would go to Abimelech and he would say, You know, Abimelech, I've got this um, young man. He's, you know, he's, he's a little bit of a nerd and he's not really outgoing, but he's going to have a really nice inheritance one day. And do you have any likely daughters who he could marry? And Abimelech would say, Well, you know, there's, uh, um, trying to think of a name that somebody who's not here. Um, um, Gertrude. Gertrude is uh, my fourth youngest daughter, and she um, doesn't seem to have much in the way of prospects, but I'd be glad to marry her to you. Um, but that's not what Abraham did, and it's clear from this story that he did not even consider doing that. So let's read Genesis 24. This is going to take a long time to read, so... Um, but then we're going to draw out some lessons from this. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son, Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at the evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming down to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you've shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder now, the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her, ha- down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her Pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent, so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden nose ring, weighing half a shekel, and two bracelets for her wrists, weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milca's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the news ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and he stood by the camel's, At the well. And he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and feed for the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has been given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. And my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my master from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps a woman will not follow me. But he said, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family, For if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water. And it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before i had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebekah coming down with her wa- pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, Please let me drink. And she made haste and let the pitcher down from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter Bethuel, Nahor's son whom Milcah bore, bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist, and I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, Thing comes from the Lord, we cannot speak to you either good or bad. Here's Rebekah before you, take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed the night. Then they arose in the morning, and he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days, uh, at least ten. After that, she may go. And he said, do not hinder me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away so I may go to my master. So they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of t- thousands and ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebecca and her maids arose, and they rode on camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahoy Roy, For he dwelt in the south, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his Mother's Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So at the beginning of this story, we find Abraham is old, Sarah is dead, and Isaac is a bachelor, and that is the state of affairs in Abraham's camp. So Abraham has a servant, and we don't know who this servant was. Uh, we're going to call him Eliezer just because we know that at some point, Earlier on, Abraham had a servant named Eliezer who was from Damascus. But he's he's his chief servant. And he is supposed to take a caravan and head back to where Abraham's family is supposedly still living in Mesopotamia and see if he can find somebody who's willing to move to Palestine to become a bride for Isaac. And the servant asks the question that has the most difficult answer. What if the woman won't come back with me? What if she's willing to marry Isaac, but she wants to stay where she's at? Is it okay for me to take Isaac back there and get married and live in Mesopotamia? And the answer is that Abraham says, if that happens, you are released from your oath whatever you do, do not take Isaac out of this land. This is a land that God has promised me. So we can understand why this question would come into the servant's mind. It's about 400 miles across the desert to Mesopotamia from the south of, of, um, of Canaan. And so it would take a month or so to travel. It would be hard work. And whatever the woman Whoever the woman was, she would never see her family again when she left. She was going never to come back again, never to see her family. And this would be a challenge to do it. So when Rebecca did make the journey, she never went back home as far as we know. So Abraham said, absolutely not. Under no circumstances is Isaac to go back. This is not an uncertain thing. Abraham has a lot of confidence. He believes that God has given him the land and he believes that God is faithful to give him descendants. He, you know, it wouldn't make any sense for God to give him a a son when he was a hundred years old and then to say, but that's it. You're not going to have grandchildren. So Eliezer responded to the request of Abraham and it seems like he accepted the mission. Um, I don't know that he had much of a choice. He was a servant, right? Um, so what did he do? He prepared. He took 10 camels and he took some other people. We know about that from when they were going back. And he took gifts. So he he's got all this stuff together. And he says, Well, you know, what sorts of things do young women like? And I don't know that Eliezer, he was probably old at this point. And I don't know that he knew what young women like, but he thought, you know, jewels are jewels are good, gold and silver and stuff like that. And we'll 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 go with that. And so And it'll keep on the way. That's the other thing, of course. When you're making a month journey, you can't bring stuff that's perishable. So, you know, even if you stop by Sam's, picking up um, cotton candy grapes is probably not what you're going to bring with you on a month journey. So he prepared. He prayed. So this is probably the biggest thing that he did. We don't know how big this area, this town was. But even if there are just a few thousand people living there, the chances of him finding Abraham's family right off and... And Rebecca were small, and he put out a little fleece. Uh, well, maybe a big fleece. So he says, "I'm going to ask a lady to give me a drink, and if she's the right one, she is going to offer to feed my uh, to to give my camels water as well." And this is a big ask because camels can drink between 15 and 20 gallons when they're thirsty. And there were 10 10 camels there. So let's say on the low side that this woman is going to have to dip 150 gallons by hand out of the well. And so the question is, why this particular fleece? This is not like Gideon's fleece, was it? So Gideon put out a fleece and he just said, well, you know, make the the ground wet and the fleece dry. And then he said the reverse and... Didn't really have any bearing on what he was looking for. But I think the servant was looking for a woman who had a servant's heart. Somebody who was willing to go the extra miles we were talking about in children's class. Somebody who wasn't afraid of work. who was willing to serve other people. So he prepared, he prayed, and he was patient. So he didn't he didn't have to wait very long at the well. It says that before he even finished praying that Rebecca showed up. But he certainly waited a long time on his journey. So it takes at least a month to travel all the way back to where Abraham was from. And he, during that time, I'm sure, had a lot of different thoughts going through his head. So it does make us think about what we should do when we're facing a task that stresses us out. It feels pretty shallow just to say, trust God. I mean, of course we need to trust God. But if we were totally trusting him, we wouldn't be experiencing anxiety. But are there specific things that we can do to help us in these moments? And I do think that overcoming anxiety starts with prayer and preparation. And I'm not sure what the balance of these two things is. If you're getting ready for a big test and you spend all your time praying and none of it studying, you may be in trouble. But at the same time, if you go in there on your own power, it may be that you studied all the wrong things too. So often the problem is that we maximize our preparation. We have prayed, but we do not relinquish the situation to God. And I don't know that I'm the person to talk about this. I'm, I'm not always trusting God fully, and I lean on my own understanding way too often. I do think it's interesting that the servant was able to have a faith based on other people's experience. So we don't know that God had done anything miraculous for the servant, But he had seen the miraculous things that God had done for Abraham. And he knew that God was faithful in Abraham's life. And in the same way, we should be able to gain a sense of God's wonderfulness, his love, his faithfulness from the lives of people around us. So Rebecca showed up. The interesting thing about this account is that Rebecca was just doing her normal thing. So she went out to the well with a pitcher on her shoulder. She was drawing water for her family. And there's nothing supernatural about this, even though she was clearly an answer to Eliezer's prayer. But here we come to the miracle of the watered camels. Or was it a miracle? How many of the women in this town would have offered to water Eliezer's camels? Well, as we said earlier, camels drink a lot of water. And maybe maybe all the women in that town were just special people who were willing to do that. Um, But I think clearly we see that um, she was a beautiful person, not only on the outside, but on the inside. And maybe you could ask yourself, if you were in Rebecca's situation, how would you have responded? Would you have given a drink to a stranger and let it go at that? And I think all of us have a tendency towards selfishness and self-interest. We don't do extra things if we don't see some sort of benefit to ourselves. But there's a blessing when we go the extra mile and not because of something that we think we might get out of it down the road. So Rebecca's family released her. So the story finishes up with Rebecca going back to her family and them inviting Abraham's servant in. And it seems that they understood that this was something that came from God. But they wanted to have a week and a half party to say goodbye to Rebecca. And Abraham's servant was firm. He just wanted to go the next day. If they weren't ready to go, then, you know, that was too bad. And we don't know why Rebecca was willing to leave so quickly. Some have assumed that she just had a, a really kind of toxic relationship with her family and just wanted to get out of there. I hope that's not the case. Um, scripture doesn't seem to indicate that. I mean, they wouldn't have said, we want to have 10 days to say goodbye to her if they just hated her. Um, but I think she certainly saw this as God's will for her life. And having seen the will of God, she wanted to get on with it. Um, and it would have taken a huge amount of faith to do this, Right. So Eliezer did not have a photograph of Isaac. She didn't have a way of, of connecting to his Facebook account or even, you know, maybe having like a, a few poems that he'd written for the, the possible love of his life. He just had some jewels and stories about how, uh, how Isaac was in need of a wife. And what happened if she got all the way back there and Isaac was terrible? And she just couldn't, even if he wasn't terrible, she just couldn't stand him. What, what happened then? But the end result was that Isaac loved Rebecca dearly and was consoled after the death, the death of his mother. So we're going to jump off here and think a little bit about marriage. So, Maybe this seems like a, an odd story to use as a jumping off place for that. Um, so I cannot imagine any of the girls in our church being excited if their dad um, found somebody who was working for his business and said, you know, I want you to travel up to and, a, a church in, in Canada and, um, you know... we'll we'll turn it around any of the boys in our church would say, you know, I'm going to send up to a church in Canada and see if there's any of the women up there who are willing to come down and marry you. And um, and they would say, well, you know, that, that does not sound, uh, that doesn't sound exact exciting to me. I, I think I'll do my own finding, but our culture today no longer values marriage. I think we do in the church, but in the church, But in the society as a whole, in the United States in 1970, the marriage rate was 76.5%. So 76 out of 100 people would get married, and today it's just over 31%. And of course, what this means is a lot of people live together without getting married, which that's kind of sad. Um, But I think it's important to mention a couple of things. Just because people stayed married in the past doesn't mean that they had good marriages. There are probably a lot of abusive situations that slogged on because um, the culture pushed them to. Um, but I think second, before we enter into a discussion about marriage, we need to admit that the church needs to have an understanding that singleness is okay too. So sometimes we married people make it sound like being single is the same as being a second-class citizen. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 through 9, the Apostle Paul is talking here, For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. And Paul almost makes it sound like it's the married people who are second-class citizens. They're the ones who have to struggle with being married and, and dealing with family responsibilities, whereas Paul, you know, he can go out and spread the gospel and do all the things God wants him to do. So I don't think, I, I think Paul was always over the top, and sometimes he exaggerated things a little bit. Peter was married, and we know that um, Peter was, was used but he, of God, but he didn't travel around nearly like Paul did either. And so I would leave it with you uh, with two ideas. Um, First, if God's will for you is to be single, even for a time, you need to make the most of that opportunity. Figure out a way that your singleness is not an obstacle to serving God. And the second thing is that we as a church need to have a culture that is accepting of singleness and incorporates it in a real way. And I don't know entirely what this looks like, but people who are single are not second-class citizens. So finding a spouse, Proverbs 18.22 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And I think the main thing that I would take from this passage is that there's no specific right way to find a spouse. So I don't think we connect very well with this story at all. It doesn't sound like our Western way of dating and um, getting to know people. Um, there are people, even today, who um, who have arranged marriages, and that's okay. So I was thinking about the John Waldron, John and Elaine Waldron story, and when I was in mid, my mid-20s, I was just getting done with my residency, and I traveled out to Oregon, and I was um, my best friend was getting married out there, and I was supposed to be the best man in, in the wedding, and so I... I had a, a young lady who walked up to me and started talking to me at this wedding. And I thought about this as time went by and I, I probably talked to my mother about it and she thought that this was just, this was heaven sent John was on the road to being Isaac and she wanted him to be on the road to being married Isaac. So anyway, so so I said, well, you know, I, I know I knew it was Elaine Berry. That's I knew that much and she found her phone number for me and she said, "Oh, you should call her." She'll think I'm crazy and I'm desperate and who knows what all. And so my mother and my sister Faith just said, "Oh, you you really need to call her up." But why did you tell her I was going to Central America? Call her and tell her that you want to write to her about your journey to Central America. And so I thought, well, you know what what could be harmed by doing that? So I did do that, and and I, I wrote to her about that, and I wrote to her about some other things later on, and and um. Eventually, we started dating, and um, eventually, we got married in April of 2022. So, I don't tell this story to tell you this is the way you should meet people either, because I didn't expect that to happen at that point. But I'm going to say a few things that I think um, are common sense. So, um, if you're struggling to find somebody, and you think that that's God's will for you, be willing to go other places. If you're single and there's no one at Bethel that you're interested in, then go other places where you might meet people. Second thing is do not go those other places in search of a spouse. Just go to meet people and spend time with people. So even if you're desperate, it's probably not best to seem desperate. So be yourself. It isn't good to show up and be the holiest person on the volleyball team. Spend time with mixed groups. So there's no particular reason why people need to pair off quickly, and there's a benefit to being around a lot of people and just able to enjoy yourself and get to know people that way. Don't feel pressure. So sometimes young people feel like they're getting old way faster than they are. And if you think you're getting old, talk to somebody who's, say, 50, and you'll find out how young they think you really are. There's not a magic age of which you have to be married. And then be willing to be used of God in whatever avenues you can now. There's no reason that you need to put your life on hold while you wait for that special someone to show up. Do voluntary service. Get special training. Do something that will benefit the kingdom now and in the future. So those are the things. Those are not from the Lord. So, you know, if they don't make sense to you, that's okay. Um, So principles that we should think about. So trust God. So I said this earlier, um, and it feels kind of trite, but at the same time, God does have a plan for our lives, and his timing is perfect. Pressing ahead before God is ready for things to happen in our lives is not wise, even if we think we are desperate. And I'm reminded of the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Abram was desperate to have a son, and Sarai was willing to do what she could to make it happen, but God had a better plan, didn't he? Second thing is be the person that you need to be. So I think before you get married, you always have an idea in your head of what your future spouse is going to be like. And the funny thing is, I don't know if it's funny, but your future spouse also has an idea in his or her head of what you're going to be like. And the problem is neither one of you is probably like that person. And that's the problem, right? So let God work in your life what you need to have to make you um, a servant. Value the right things. So when you're thinking about meeting the man or woman of your dreams, there are probably things that feel important to you. They may not even be the things that you'd mention to someone else if you were making a list, but in your mind, they feel important. So I think people do value physical appearance too much. Proverbs 31 verse 30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Um, And this is phrased in terms of women because Psalm is writing to his sons, but it's true for men as well. And there are a lot of people who look attractive on the outside but are not on the inside. People value family connections and business opportunities too much. So it's nice to have money. It's nice to have enough money that you can live comfortably. But at the same time, many homes have lots of money and are very joyless. Proverbs twenty-one nine says, Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. And we could say the reverse too, couldn't we? People value level of conservatism too much. So this is not to say you should date someone who has no convictions about anything, but The question in my mind is not how conservative are you today, but where are you heading? And so many people look the same as you do today, and yet their heart is not where you are at at all. And 10 years from now, they want to be someplace completely different. And so I would say rather than valuing where somebody is at, value value where someone is heading. Value a similar understanding of God and the importance of his work in our lives. So this is the reason why Abraham sent off to Mesopotamia, isn't it? Because the women around were not people who valued God. Isaac needed someone who was going to to see God and know God in a way that was congruent with where he was at. So a person should change not because they want to be with you, but because they want to be like Jesus. Look for people who have a servant's heart. We saw this already. Um, And when you're in love, you tend to overlook things that tell you that someone's not got that. And then identify warning signs. So what are warning signs? Well, first of all, maybe an unwillingness to be accountable to somebody else. So nearly all of us do better in a mentorship relationship. And if somebody pushes back on that and they're not willing to do that, that's a problem, and that's a red flag. Second thing is signs of poor self-control. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. And if somebody has evidence of current addictions, uncontrolled internet use, or other things like that, that's a problem. Signs of uncontrolled anger. Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25 says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. And I think the same things apply if you're dating somebody. Um, I think we see this more often with, uh, with men than with women, but there's probably women who struggle with that. And then avoid people who run down the other people in their life. So... There's some people who can't say anything good about their parents, about their pastors, about anybody else. And you may be wonderful, but you won't stay wonderful. And if they've got this habit of picking out all the negative things in the people around them, they're eventually going to start doing it to you too. And that's a problem. So I've thrown a whole bunch of things out here. And as I say, I don't know if any of those connect with you. Um, but as I conclude, I was thinking about uh, Rosalind Goforth. So there was a man who was a missionary to China by the name of Jonathan Goforth. And her, his wife wrote about meeting her future husband, Jonathan. And she was invited to go to a picnic. And she didn't think she should go because she was getting ready to travel to England. And at the last second, she agreed to go along. And on that picnic, she was in, introduced to her future husband, Jonathan Goforth. He was introduced as Our City Missionary. This was some place in Canada. And she noticed how shabby he looked. And at the same time, there was a wonderful challenge in his eyes. And she ended up visiting the mission where he was working just a week later. And at some point in the afternoon, he was called away. And as he went to another room, he placed his Bible on a chair. And she wrote this later. Then something happened which I could never explain nor try to excuse. Suddenly, I felt literally impelled to step across, pass four or five other people, take up the Bible, and return to my seat. Rapidly, I turned the leaves and found the book almost worn to shreds in parts and marked from cover to cover. Closing the book, I quickly returned it to the chair and returned to my seat. I tried to look very innocent. It had all happened within a few moments, but as I sat there, I said to myself, That is the man I would like to marry. And she did marry him. And they moved to China and spent many years in ministry there. And so I'm going to finish up just saying a couple things. First of all, walk in faith. God is good, and he has a plan for our lives. Second thing, as we said before, be the person that God wants you to be. Whether you are married or single, there is no occupation that is not improved by simply being in God's will. And then value the right things in the people around you and in yourself. I don't know who you will marry, and I'm not going to fix you all up because I'm a terrible matchmaker. But I know that God has a good plan for your life. Your task today is simply to listen to his voice.